your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 15. Gospel of Mark, chapter number 15. Caleb read a number of these passages earlier. We will work our way through them to some degree this morning. Mark, chapter 15. Begin reading. Just I won't read all that Caleb did, but let's read verses 37 through 39. Mark 15, verse 37 through 39. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. When the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we come to these very sobering passages this morning. And I pray that, Lord, you would use them to prick our hearts, that all of us, that, Lord, may it be that the entire world would come to the acknowledgement and the understanding and the truth that this old Roman soldier did that day. Truly, this man, this Jesus, is the Son of God. So, Lord, help me now as I seek to, Lord, give light to your word. And, Lord, all I can do is just... Seek to preach it as you've given it to me. But Lord, you really give the life and the light to it. Minister to hearts. Draw them into yourself. For this will be eternally thankful to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On this Sunday morning before Easter, I find myself, and I, in preparation for the morning, I, I find myself in quite of a dilemma. I mentioned it to you just a little bit last week. Uh, as we begin, as we have been, making our way through the Gospel of Mark, according to, I go back and look, according to where I think we began this, we began this study in Mark on February the 9th, 2020. So it's been some time we've been in Mark's Gospel on Sunday mornings. And so I, you never know as a preacher, you never know how many verses you're going to be able to cover or what you're going to do. And, and if you're just going to take it from a topical perspective, you can kind of make your way through it pretty quickly. If you take it uh, a paragraph along, then it's a little bit slower. If you go verse by verse, then certainly you can just spend a whole lot of time in these passages and as we have been working our way through, I was knowing that, understanding, knowing that Easter was coming up, I'm beginning to think, where do we end? Where do we pick up? Are we going to be prepared for Easter? And last week, we ended up in Mark chapter number 14 and verse number 53. That was a section in a place where Jesus had been now led away uh, to the high priest after being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we spent several weeks considering Gethsemane. And we've called these messages here these last few weeks, the journey to the cross. And I mentioned the difficulty that I found my place in was, do we continue verse by verse working our way through? And if we do this, then there's so much more ahead, then we may not really be prepared in, a, in an idea of resurrection Sunday morning. I like to come to Easter Sunday morning and come to the place where the Bible says he is risen. He's not here. He's alive. So I come to the passage this morning as a preacher. I'll be honest with you. It pains me to skip verses. It really does. It just pains me to skip the verses, to rush ahead. But out of some prayer and some consideration of the passage this week, I said, okay, we'll do that. The, the issue here is that 
that we get to chapter number 16, and that is the resurrection morning. And we have 20 verses dealing with the resurrection and the events that immediately follow right after the resurrection. But from where we left off last week, to get to chapter number 16, we have 65 verses to cover (laughs) on Sunday morning. So go ahead and put your goggles on, your helmets on. And hang on, so we're going to go for a bit of a ride. No, that won't be all true, the case this morning. But we do tend to move a little bit quickly. Maybe I come back and we pick up some of the verses because there's so much to be seen and learned from these passages. But through these things, I, I believe the Lord would just have us go on and begin considering. But in doing so, I we will not take a verse by verse perspective as we have often done. But I want us to take a particular focus. I want us to consider as we lead up to Easter a particular view and a focus and keep it in mind. This morning, I want us to focus on God at Calvary. On God at Calvary. God visited Calvary. Uh, Andrew and I never discuss the music of the Sunday mornings. We never do that. Um, I would not... know what to tell him if he were to ask me about the music aspect of things. And I sure appreciate those who handle it. But I appreciate the way the Lord, and we have seen in a number of weeks how the Lord just puts the music together that coincides with the scriptures, the preaching. Andrew has no idea the direction of the messages, and I really have no idea of the direction of the music. We just both trust God in the leadership in that regard, and we begin to see how God has put that together this morning. The music this morning has been focused upon Calvary, so the message will follow and continue that mind and that particular uh, mindset this morning and that focus. We have all been blessed at times to see places and to attend special events. All of us have been to those kinds of things. Maybe the last vacation you went on, maybe a place where your family gathered and you got to see and some, do some things, whether traveling uh, to the mountains or maybe going somewhere to the beach, traveling across country or overseas. Uh, we all have memories. All have memories that are etched. Um, in our minds of things we did, things we saw, and, uh, and we could recall all of those things in different times, in different places. We take pictures. Well, we don't, do we really take pictures anymore? Uh, we take those digital things, and, and uh, there's something special. I don't know why I'm saying this, but there's something special about pictures, about the hard copy pictures. You know, getting those boxes or something cool. When you go home as a child to, to find the box that mom and dad stashed away under the bed or in a, in a drawer somewhere, and to get those pictures out, those hard copies, and see how people have changed. We do, don't we? You say, wow, did I look like that? Did I have hair back then? Was my hair that color back then? Uh, well, I won't say anything about was I that size back then. But, but those pictures tell a tale. And we miss that, don't we? Everything's gone digital now. I don't know how we'll get back to that. If some kids come to the house, you know, do they pull out the digital files, the digital pictures? Maybe so. I don't know how that really works. Maybe this new generation, I'm sure they'll figure it all out and already have. But we go to places And we have those memories that are etched, things that we saw, things that we did, that we just go back and revisit. But this morning, by the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit, I I want us to go to Calvary. 
And I pray that the Holy Spirit and the, the work of God this morning would etch in our hearts, in our minds, some things that took place at Calvary. Although some of you may have been to that area where they call Calvary and been to those places if you've traveled to the Holy Land. Uh, praise the Lord for that. And that's a wonderful thing. Maybe one day uh, I'll get to go. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say maybe. One day I will get to go. Because I'm going to rule and reign with Christ there one day in that thousand year millennial reign. So it'd be okay to go here. But I certainly will go there. And that'll be wonderful. But some of you have been there already. And you can go back and hearken. You read the scriptures and see some things. But I would like for us all this morning to take a fresh look at Calvary, and I ask the Holy Spirit uh, as we do so that God would change our lives. When we come to Calvary, and we come to the, the place called Calvary, it ought to be a place where God changes our lives. I pray that God would change some of our lives by way of salvation. There are some here in this building this morning that may not be saved. You've been religious been part of a group, you joined a church, you did some religious acts and, and some carried through with some religious rituals, but you never truly been saved. Not sure if you died today, heaven's your home. Can't give a Bible reason as to why that's the case. So I pray as we look at Calvary this morning that some would be changed. Others, I pray, that as we look at this, others would be not only changed by way of salvation, but some would be changed by way of surrender. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. And it seems like as time goes on, we come to know Christ. And as time goes on, just the inertia and the living of life in this world, uh, things can just some kind, sometimes begin to, to grow cold in our walk with the Lord. That's why it's important that we are regularly under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Singing the songs and being part of the worship so important in, in our lives. But maybe some have grown a little cold this morning. And I, and I pray that this would be a time of, uh, of, of freshness for you. A time, a fresh look at Calvary gives us a fresh reason. It ought to give us a fresh reason to live for God daily. To live surrendered to the will of God for our lives. So this morning, we make our journey to the cross to see God. And we see God at the cross when we think of God this morning, we begin to think of the Lord, think of God at Calvary. I want us to be reminded, and we must remember that God, when we speak of God, we speak of a triune God. <clears throat> we speak of a trinity. God is three distinct persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three our God, yet all three make up the one and only true God. All three are God, yet all make up the one and only true God. Mark chapter 12 and verse number 29. I'll read you the verse. The Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. Some might say, and they are many, there are many, there are denominations or cults out there. Let me just say it that way. There are cults out there that deny the Trinity. And some say, I, I, I don't believe the Trinity because I can't understand it. Well, uh, there are many examples. The examples that we could look at uh, would certainly break down. But, but let me ask you, do you believe in an egg? A good way to help us understand 
the Trinity, just help us to maybe grasp it a little bit, is to understand the egg. You have the shell, you have the yolk, you have the white, all three parts, but they all make up a unified whole. Now, you can't separate them. That illustration begins to break down because you can separate them. But with the Trinity, you can't separate them in that regard. But a better illustration would be that of a triangle. You know what a triangle is? Three complete sides that make up the triangle. You try to remove one of those sides and you destroy the triangle. It's no longer a triangle. You can't separate it. You can't remove one side and still remain a triangle. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three make up the one whole. God. Is God the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is God Jesus Christ the Son? God, yes. Is God the Father? God, yes. All three are God. When we see the cross, we see the entire Trinity at work. We see it in the the death, burial, and the resurrection. We will note this again this morning, but we'll also note it again further next week when we look at Easter Sunday. We know, see all three at the work of the cross, all three involved in the work of the cross. And I want us to grasp this morning this thought that the work of God at the cross was for us. The work of God at the cross was on our behalf. What we see at Calvary is God working for us. God supplying for us. So this morning, let's take a look at God working for us on the way to the cross as well as at the cross. On the way to Calvary as well as at Calvary. First of all, I want you to note a couple of things with me as we work our way through some of these passages this morning. First of all, let's see God and His willingness for us at Calvary. God and His willingness for us at Calvary. I want us to note this morning, and please understand, I've already said it, but when we consider God at Calvary and God on His way to Calvary, He was willing to go for us. God was willing to go for us to Calvary. The willingness of God for us. The willingness of God to go for us. The entire Bible is the story of how God came to seek And to save the lost. And that includes you. Every individual here. That includes me. How God came. The entire Bible. It's a a love story written to you. Written to lost people. For God so loved the world. It's a love story written to lost people. Who were enemies against God. Had nothing wanting to do with God. But yet God so loved us. That he sent his son. It's a love story to lost people. The willingness of God to go for us. Notice, I want to notice as we lead up to the cross that there was a willingness to be silent for us. A willingness as he's going to the cross, there's a willingness to be silent for us. And I want us to see this as we look at it a little bit. I believe that one of the most difficult things for us as human beings is for us to do is to remain silent And not strike back when we are accused of wrongdoing. To remain silent and not strike back when we are accused of wrongdoing. To keep quiet when others are not quiet about us. Sometimes that's a hard thing to do. Maybe it's one of the most difficult things in human nature to pull off. 
What do we do? We defend ourselves. We demand our rights. We demand and show forth our innocence. We demand to be heard. We set out to vindicate our reputation, our perceived good name, if you want to call it that. We set out to defend ourselves. Even when the accusation against us is true to some degree, we still seek out to defend, don't we? Well, it wasn't my fault. Well, you know, if I hadn't been raised that way, I wouldn't have been this way. They started it. If they hadn't said what they said, I wouldn't have said what I said. So even when the accusation comes against us and there's some truth involved, we still like to minimize it. We still like to uh, just uh, drop it as soon as we possibly can. But oh, if an accusation is a false one. If the accusation is a false one, well, we really stand up in arms then, don't we? We really stand up in arms in an effort to squash the one who's opposing us in this regard. But Jesus, when we think about his willingness to be silent, Jesus was willing to remain silent in the face of his accusers. Read with me Mark chapter 14, verses 55 and following. Mark 14, verses 55 and following. The chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But notice Verse 59, but neither so did their witnesses agree together. They couldn't even find two people that could get their stories right. Couldn't even find two that would make an accusation, but yet still the accusations continue to come. In any uh, real court of law, in any other than a mockery court, this would have been thrown out from the get-go. It had never made it to this point. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What's he going to answer? No accusations that are truthful have come against. Answerest thou nothing? What is it that which these witnesses against thee? But I want you to notice verse 61 in the first part. But he held his peace and answered nothing. Understand that Jesus is willing to be silent for you. Willing to be silent for me. He could, they could not even get the two to to agree together. But Jesus remained silent. But he held his peace and answered nothing. When Pilate, when you read with me to chapter 15, he had now gone to Pilate, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou king of the Jews? And he answered, saying unto him, Thou sayest it. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Jesus told the truth. and He says, Are you the king? You sayest. Do you really believe it, Pilate? Thou sayest it. 
Then the accusations begin to come. But the Bible says, when they came, he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things these witnesses against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Why did Pilate marvel? Pilate knew what he would have done if he'd have been in that situation. We know what we'd have done if we'd have been in that situation. But Jesus answered nothing. If we go to the gospel of Luke, chapter number 23, uh, Luke's account of what's taking place. In Luke, chapter number 23, verses 8 through 10. Pilate, by the way, it said time and time again, I find no fault in him. Answerest thou nothing? The accusations have come. I find no fault. And Jesus answered nothing. We go to Luke chapter number 23, verses 8 and 10 through 10. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he, had desire, he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he'd answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. He remained silent for you. And he remained silent for me. He's God. Think about this. He's God. He has every right to defend himself. He is God. He does not even need to do so. His life has proven who he is. His ministry up to this very day is proven as to who he is. But he had every right to defend himself. In fact, he had never sinned. Jesus never thought a sin. Jesus never uh, committed evil, any evil deed did he do. He didn't do anything. He was the spotless, sinless son of God, the lamb of God. He had every right to defend himself, but he didn't. We look at the cross, we see his willingness to be silent for us. Number two, not only do we see his willingness to be silent, but we see his willingness to be sentenced for us. His willingness to be sentenced for us. Keep in mind that he is now silent to the events and those who are making accusations against him. If we go back to chapter number 14, we look at verse number 63 through 65. Mark 14, verse 63 through 65. And the high priest ran his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face. And to buffet him. And to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Jesus is willing to be silent. He's willing to be sentenced to death. We go to chapter 15, verses 6 through 13, chapter 15, verses 6 through 13. Now at the feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound, uh, which they, excuse me, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. 
But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto us. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, Will ye then that I shall do? What will ye then that I should do unto him that ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Crucify him. A willingness to be silent, a willingness to be sentenced for you and for me. The hymn writer penned these words. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They sped upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They cried, crucify him. He's to blame. Upon his precious head they placed a crown of thorns. They laughed and said, behold the king. They struck him. They cursed him. And mocked his holy name. All alone. All alone he suffered everything. To the howling mob he yielded. He did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And then he cried, it is finished. He gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world. Set himself free. But he died alone for you and for me. As we take a look at Calvary this morning. We see that he was willing to be silent. We see that he was willing to be sentenced for you, for you and for me. We see his willingness at Calvary. But not only do we see the willingness that led Christ to Calvary. We take a look at the cross. The willingness that led them there. But we see the wrath for us. The willingness for us and the wrath for us at Calvary. Now go with me to chapter number 15 again. Begin reading in verse number 15 through 20. The wrath of God for us at Calvary. Chapter 15 verses 15 through 20. And so Pilate willing to contend the people. Released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when they had scourged him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. And began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed. And did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him. Put on his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. I want you to see the wrath in the scourging. We see the wrath of God at Calvary. Notice with me the wrath in the scourging. We quickly can read that word scourging out of verse number 15. And he had him scourged. We, we can read that in so quickly. It's just a word. It's on page in print on a page and we can quickly go past it but let's not do so this morning I want us to understand this scourging was more than any person should been able to bear 
Jesus is beaten here in the scourging of Pilate. As a matter of fact, Pilate does it here even before he scourges Jesus in, a, in an effort to, when they see Jesus and they see his, his badly, badly beaten, bludgeoned, bloody body of Jesus, he scourges him in, in hopes that they see this, the crowd sees it, and he, he presents Jesus to them once again. So maybe they'll see him and maybe they'll have a bit of mercy upon him. But still yet they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Beaten unmercifully with something that's called the cat of nine tails. One writer said it this way, the goal of scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and tissues. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. As they sit there and they tie Jesus to a post and they begin to beat him. The scourging, the wrath and the scourging. We see the wrath... Understand the wrath, these soldiers are pouring out their wrath, but this is God's wrath being poured out upon sin and against sin. The willingness to suffer the wrath for us at Calvary, the wrath in the scourging, the wrath in the sarcasm. Verses 17 and 18. They clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Put a purple robe signifying royalty. Take a crown of thorns. They twisted crown of thorns. They they twisted together and they placed it upon his head. Not only they placed it upon, they plied it down upon his head. They pulled it down upon his head rather. And began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. We see the sarcasm, the wrath and the sarcasm. Verse 20, when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe from him. And put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. We see the wrath in the scourging, the wrath in the sarcasm, sarcasm, the wrath in the smiting. Verse 19 in the very first part. And they smote him on the head with a reed. They smote him on the head with a reed. Oh, they strike him in the face. We just read that earlier. They smote him on the head with a reed. This reed would symbolize that scepter that a king would handle, would have. They put a, a robe upon his back and put a, a mockingly king's scepter in his hand. They take it from him with that crown that's upon his head. Now they not only beat him in the face, but now they begin to beat him upon the head. Forcing that crown even further into the skin, the precious body of Our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath and the smiting. The fists and the reed. But it goes further. The wrath and the spitting. The wrath and the spitting. Verse 19. And did spit upon him. And bowing their knees worshipped him. The wrath and the spitting. I I can't quite comprehend all of that. I can't quite take it all in. 
They mockingly bow their knees and they pay homage with their spittle as it runs down the cheeks of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus has turned here in these passages, Jesus has turned into nothing more than wicked entertainment for brutal Roman soldiers. The wrath and the spitting. But he goes even further. The wrath that's seen in the shame. Verses 21 through 24. And they compelled one Simon of Cyrene. Who passed by coming out of the country. The father of Alexander of Rufus to bear his cross. And they began. Excuse me. And they bring him into the place. Golgotha. Which is being interpreted the place of the skull. They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, and casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Here we see the wrath and the shame. The wrath and the shame. This passage is taken out of Psalm 22 and verse number 18. Here in this passage we see that Jesus is stripped naked. Jesus is stripped naked and he's nailed to a cross where everybody can walk by and see and everybody can come by. The Romans, this would have been a travesty for the Jews. Even with the crucifixion, you would dare to go this, to this degree. But the Romans in their brutality, they strip him and he's naked for all the world to see. See what's written above the cross. In this wrath and the shame, what's written above the cross. The king of the Jews. Oh, what shame he suffered for you and for me. We see the wrath that was at Calvary. But I want us to see this morning, and please, as we seek to close our time together this morning. This wrath was against sin. This wrath was against sin. Verses 15, chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. The wrath was against sin. Chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. The sixth hour was come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. Here even in this, they did not misunderstand what Jesus said. This is again was another area, another place to mock him. They understood that one would come before the Messiah would come. Elias would come. Here they're mocking him again. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. Elias. He's calling for Elijah. He's calling for the prophets that will come. Let, let's see if he'll come. Here they're continuing to mock him. One ran filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the centurion which stood over against him saw, so that he cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
The Bible tells us in verse number 33 that when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The darkness that came. I believe there's so much here to entails this darkness that we could really never fully grasp and understand it. But this darkness, I believe, is a symbol of God's wrath against sin. Symbol of God's wrath against sin. The sun refused to shine as the sin of all the world was placed upon Jesus Christ there during those days, during those hours rather. My sin, your sin. The sin of all the world placed upon Jesus. The fullness of God's wrath poured out, get this, upon God himself. The fullness of God's wrath poured out upon God himself. It should have been me. It should have been you. All of us are guilty for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We should have been on that cross. We should have died. And if we had been on that cross and died, we would have died right. We would have died in such a way we would have been guilty. So we would have rightfully died. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He had no sin. But all the sin of the world was placed upon him. The fullness of God's wrath poured out upon God himself. Isaiah 53 Wonderful passages of Scripture. I encourage you to read these passages during this week and leading up as you pray and prepare for these days. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when he shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus Christ, upon that cross, the wrath that was all poured out upon him, it was poured out upon sin. Poured out upon sin, that darkness. I don't believe that God in his, God in his righteousness, at that moment there's a transaction that's taking place. It's so divine that I don't think we could understand it till we get to heaven one day. But all the sin at that moment's placed upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every sin that you ever uh, committed, every sin that I ever committed, every wrong deed, every thought, every act, every response, everything that we've ever done placed upon the Lord. And God the Father unleashed His fury, not against sinners, but He unleashed it against the sin-bearer, His Son, Jesus Christ. This darkness was a cloak that concealed the terribleness of the moment when Jesus bore the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. He was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. And the centurion saw it. He saw what had taken place. 
Keep in mind, this would have been one of the same centurions that would have been back there. That would have been mocking. Maybe it was one of those that plaited the crown of thorns and put it upon the head of Jesus. Maybe it was the same one that took the reed and beat Jesus upon the head. Maybe it's the same one that buffeted. Maybe it was the one that ran into the crowd and says, I know what we'll do. I'll know what we'll do. Let's go find a robe and put it upon him. It was surely the same one that was there as they nailed Jesus to the cross. And he saw the willingness. He saw the wrath. And he came to this truthful conclusion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. We see the willingness of God at Calvary. We see the wrath of God at Calvary. And in one verse, and I'll just mention this, which, but it's so important. I, I don't know how you can mention it, but we'll have to pick it up next week. The work of God at the cross. The work of God at the cross. That transaction was completed. Jesus Christ died there on Calvary's tree. He died for you and he died for me. Look at verse number 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. For century after century, the Old Testament sacrifices, they would go in, the priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, would walk into that Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat for the people. But even he... Before he could go in, he had to sacrifice for his own self, his own sin. He had to have himself ceremonially cleansed. But this one Jesus, he goes in once for all. Once forever. He ends the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, That veil that was a, a, a large curtain that was so thick, it was put there, it could not be taken down. It was so large But the Bible says it was rent from top to bottom. Only God can do this. What did this do? It ushers in a new and living way. Not an old way. Not a way of works. Not a way of self-righteousness. Not a way that says, look what I've done. But it's a way that says, look what Jesus has done. Look at Calvary. See what he's done for you. See what he's done for me. It was rent in two. The mark of the Old Testament sacrifices. That, and this also marked the entrance of that new and living way. The barrier that had existed between God and man for decades, for centuries, since the beginning of mankind, now has been brought down in Jesus Christ. He paid it all. All to Him we owe. If you're not saved this morning, Can I beg you to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Oh, what he did for you. Don't trust in this other thing. Something that you think, this is what I've heard. This is what they've said. Trust in the word of God. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. By way of the cross. Are you going to heaven? I trust you are. But the only way you'll get there is by way of the cross. Through Jesus Christ. Faith and trust, dependence upon him and him alone. He is our sin bearer. 
He opened up a new and living way. The willingness of God at Calvary, the wrath of God at Calvary, the work of God at Calvary, all of these for us. Now, praise God, the story doesn't end there. I'm already wanting to preach next Sunday. Because we're going to add another one to it. The wonder. The wonder of God at Calvary. He's not here. He's risen. He wasn't there. But can I say, he's here. He's here. He lives within my heart. Does he live within yours? Oh, I trust he does. If he does not, I beg you this morning, accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross this morning. We thank you for all that you've accomplished. Lord, all that you, you bore for us, your willingness to the wrath, Lord, you did that. You didn't have to. but we, You did it because you loved us. Lord, I, I can't comprehend all that. All I can do is say thank you. Lord, all I can do is worship you. All I can do is surrender to you. Lord, all any of us can do, the place to begin to say thank you is to accept you as our personal Lord and Savior. There may be someone here today that's not saved. Lord, you're speaking to their hearts in that small voice, drawing, saying, come. That small voice that's raising the the signal that something's not right, that needs to be made right. May today be that day. Someone in this service. Someone watching by live stream. Lord, I thank you that you're dealing in hearts. And I pray that there'd be a willing surrender now. Lord, I pray for the Christians. For all those who are born again in Christ. Lord, may we live that sacrificial life. Because you sacrificed everything for us. May we live in such a fashion that would honor and please you daily. May we walk in the will of God and the filling of the Spirit of God. Lord, help us have that boldness to tell everybody about Calvary. Lord, what's accomplished now? In Jesus' name, we'll say thank you.